Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss how the government can level up the nation's health. I'm Gemma Tetlow, the IFG's Chief Economist. Levelling up is the big ambition for Boris Johnson's government beyond coronavirus. One important aspect of inequality between places in the UK has for a long time been the differences in health. That matters for people's well-being, but also for their productivity at work and the demands placed on health and social care services. So I'm delighted that you all joined us today to discuss the crucial question of how we can level up the nation's health and what role for government and business in doing that. We're very grateful to Legal and General for sponsoring today's event. To help us discuss these questions, I'm delighted we're joined by a fantastic panel today. Joe Bibby is the Director of Health at the Health Foundation, responsible for leading the Foundation's Healthy Lives Strategy. Professor Sir Michael Marmot is probably the UK's most prominent advocate for tackling health inequalities, leading the Government Commission's Strategic Review of Health Inequalities in England in 2010, and a recent update, the Marmot Review 10 years on. Tina Woods is a social entrepreneur and founder of various ventures to drive systemic change in health, including Business for Health, a social enterprise, to help businesses maximise their positive contribution to the nation's health in a sustainable way. And Nigel Wilson is Group Chief Executive of Legal and General, and also a member of the Prime Minister and Chancellor's Build Back Better Business Council. And we're very grateful to LNG for sponsoring this event and look forward to hearing from Nigel about the thinking that LNG have been doing about the role for the private sector in levelling up health. A few brief housekeeping notes before we kick off. Um, please do start sending in your questions via the Q&A function. And if you're happy to do so, please do add your name and where you're uh, tuning in from. It's always good to know who we have on the other end of these events. Um, we'll be live tweeting the event from the at IFG events uh, Twitter account and using the hashtag, hashtag IFG leveling up. So please do follow and tweet along. Today's event is obviously on the record and the video and sound recording of the event will be up on our website within 24 hours. But before we hand over to the panel, uh, I want to hand over to my uh, colleague, the director of the IFG, Bronwyn Maddox, for a few opening remarks. Bronwyn. Chairman, thank you very much indeed. Um, I just wanted to say a few things at the beginning about why we're so pleased to be doing this event and doing it with LNG. Leveling up is one of the, the government's main priorities. We hear about it a lot and it promises to shape the policy landscape as the country and the economy recovers from coronavirus. And yet, as it stands, leveling up can mean all things to all people. As the government works to clarify what it means by levelling up, we at the Institute for Government will be doing a lot more work on what we think it means and how the government can achieve its aims most effectively. So we're really delighted to be partnering with Legal and General to put on two events on this topic of levelling up over the next week. On Monday, we're going to be joined by Peter Mandelson and Rachel Wolfe to ask what does levelling up really mean? And I'd encourage you to sign up for that event if you haven't already. And then there's the discussion we're about to have now. Given what we've been through over the past 15 months, it's really appropriate that today's event is asking what role improving public health should play in that levelling up agenda. The pandemic's affected different groups and areas very unequally on top of existing large health inequalities. The important question and the one before us today is what the government can do to level up the nation's health as well as the role of business I look forward to hearing answers to this from the panel. I'll now hand back to Gemma to start the discussion. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Michael, let me come to you first. You've researched health inequalities in the UK for several decades. How important is it that health is a central part of the levelling up agenda for the next few years? If you look at the report we did with the Health Foundation, the 10 years on report that we published just before the pandemic struck, what we reported was that health had pretty well stopped improving over the last decade, health inequalities increased, and life expectancy for the poorest people outside London was going down. This was a terrible situation. And then the pandemic struck and made all of that worse, which is why we called our second report of last year, Build Back Fairer, put equity of health and well-being at the heart of all government policy. So what can the government do apart from putting equity at the heart? We had six domains of recommendations in my 2010 report, which we renewed in the 2020 reports. Give every child 
the best start in life, education and lifelong learning, employment and working conditions. Everyone should have at least the minimum income necessary for a healthy life. Number five, healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work, including housing. And number six, taking a social determinants approach to prevention. So we really know the causes of ill health and health inequalities. Building back fairer or leveling up needs to invest in those six domains in an equitable way. Brilliant, thank you. Joe, I'll come to you next. The Health Foundation has proposed a cross-government strategy to promote public health. The government's levelling up agenda is largely focused on economic regeneration. What are the spillover benefits of better public health on the, the economy and well-being? Well, I think we know from our own experiences good health is an enabler of our ability to participate in work, in our communities um, and in family life. And um, when you look at the stats, a third of working age adults in the areas with lowest healthy life expectancy are economically inactive. So by having poor health in the population, that's acting as a break onto the sort of economic levelling up, which the government wants to achieve. Um, similarly, 43% of unemployed people report having poor mental health. So we see how poor health becomes a barrier to participating. So if the government wants to level up the economy, it can't do it without levelling up health as well. And I think the sort of bonuses is that it's not an either or, it's not health or the economy. We've seen that over the last year and a half. Um, if we have um, good health is necessary to economic participation, but if we can create a good economy, we can also improve health. Um, but I think one of the things that has to be paid attention to is that um, levelling up the economy won't lead to benefits in health unless we do it in a conscious way, unless we really make sure we target the areas of greatest need, that we look at both inequalities across local areas and within local areas, um, because even in the wealthiest of um, local councils, we see um, people experience inequality. It's not just a sort of broad geographical thing. We also need to make sure that the levelling up agenda invests in the things that create the conditions for good health along the lines that Michael's been talking about, closing the attainment gap, good quality work, supporting communities. And I think the other thing is what we've seen um, is that there's a lot of remedial action needs to be done now to, um, it's not just something we can solve through forward investment, we need to have the remedial action to um, address in work poverty, to improve our food environment and those kinds of actions where we actually just have endemic problems at the moment um, in our society. Thank you. Tina, you supported the all-party parliamentary group on longevity and they recently proposed that the government adopt a health improvement plan. What should be the priorities for that plan? Yes, um, I hope everyone can hear me. Yes, so um, the Leveling Up Health report was a follow-on report to the initial one that we launched actually just before COVID called Health of the Nation and uh, done by the uh, All-Party Parliamentary Group for Longevity, which effectively has acted almost like an incubator of ideas and, and we're sort of uh, springboarding, springboarding, uh, springboarding from that to actually execute some of the actions that are in the report, which we'll come on to in a second. Um, but in this particular report, um, we've essentially um, been build on the, uh, the overall sort of mission that we had set um, in terms of the uh, manifesto commitment on five extra years of healthy life expectancy while minimizing health inequalities. And of course, a lot of it has built on um, Sir Michael's work. And indeed, we have we worked with the Institute for, for Health Equity on the, on the, on the initial report. Uh, so, um, but in terms of the priorities that we laid out in the Leveling Up Health report, and we launched it uh, a couple of months ago with support of uh, Matt Hancock, our Secretary of State, uh, Chris Whitty, CMO, and uh, Henry Dimbleby, who's of course about to come out with a national food strategy. And it really was around uh, who supported the framing and the ideas. And it was really around the ambition and to recommit to the healthy life expectancy while minimizing health inequalities goal. We call it HLE plus five for shorthand. Um, and we needed, to, uh, we also we also wanted to have a more, I guess, a pragmatic approach in terms of focus. What can we achieve in the short to medium term um, in terms of the leveling up health agenda and looking at the worst health in five key areas, which were smoking, 
um, clean air and, of course, obesity, clean food, healthy food and um, healthy children. And of course, the last three are quite linked. Uh, we also wanted to present the case for change. And I know Joe spoke to government uh, action you know, across um, departments. Um, so we have ideas around that in the report. Um, but we also proposed um, a health improvement plan and fund a 10 year sort of plan um, to improve the health of communities um, and actually have you know, initiated sort of what we what we felt the fund could look at. Um, you know, uh, essentially offering a, uh, essentially consisting of a five-year partnership um, to improve health, working with you know the 60 local authorities around the country that um, are in most need of, of the support in terms of you know the the data on um, health inequalities, um, uh, worth about 10 million a year on average. This is all spelled out in a report which you can look at on the APPG for Longevity website. Um, uh, but essentially, um, uh, and of course, we know that we also need to focus um, on um, you know, making making a credible case on uh, getting the most value out of that money. So, uh, but also we, you know, Joe spoke to this as well. We need um, all government departments to focus on this. So it's not just the Department for Health and Social Care because that's the mistake that we often fall into. Is that it's the NHS that has the, the whole solution? Um, so there's a, a whole program of work around how do we, um, and, and this is actually what we're discussing at the moment with our with our colleagues. How do we do that, especially in the run up to the formation of the Office for Health Promotion, which shouldn't be seen as just being owned by the Department of Health and Social Care. It needs to be a cross-government initiative. So we've got a number of key projects that we're now tabling and uh, uh, trying to secure funding for. Um, and these are very, very briefly, we'll come on to sort of uh, this in more detail, I'm sure, in the course of the discussion around central local partnerships. We know the access is moving toward local um, NHS commitment around uh, preventative health metrics. And we've got a whole um, ideas around that. Um, uh, the Business Coalition for a Healthier Nation, which is now called Business for Health, which has been set up, launched in November. And of course, Legal in General and the Health Foundation are very involved in that, as, as indeed uh, many other partners. Um, and uh, some ideas around um, uh, forming uh, charities for change and also getting more cross-party support. So uh, those are the top line um, sort of headline sort of projects, but I can go into more detail as we go into discussion. Thanks, Tina. And Nigel, what do you think the role should be for businesses and investors to improve public health and refrain from actions that perhaps harm public health? And, and how similar is that to the focus on green investing that's obviously become a very big topic of debate as well in recent years? I'll take those in reverse order and um, just talk about the evolution of, of climate because I think there's some good and relevant lessons. I mean, there have been three great reports, which I'll refer to. One is Michael's brilliant report in 2010, Nick Stern's on climate change with Adair in 2006, and the Stevenson Farmer report on mental health, which I'm sure everyone's um, familiar with. But it's how long it takes from great reports into making good stuff happen. And you know, we, we have developed a sort of pledging culture and not a doing culture. And I think what we need to do at a big pitch level is move to being a, a, a doing culture. And we as probably the biggest investor in the UK kind of want it to become a doing culture so we can really, really make a, make a difference. Uh, I think that's point one. I think the, the, there is to a certain extent there's some enlightened self-interest. You know, the cost to business of sickness and absence is 90 to 100 billion. You know, Stevenson Pharma estimated mental health costs 30 billion pounds per annum, which I, you know, I think is a, a, a fairly accurate. You know, type 2 diabetes, you know, 10 billion pounds. All of these things cost a huge amount of money. Um, so there's enlightened self-interest for really get, getting involved. Uh, you know, as part of our purpose and I think the purpose of many businesses is edging more towards having a purpose and therefore inclusive capitalism rather than exclusive capitalism and exclusive means the rich have got richer they've got better health they've got better education got greater, you know they've retained lots of stuff whereas the poor have got worse as, as Michael and others have mentioned in the the points that have happened uh, so far so there has never been so much money available to invest in and we, we're now we're all readily accept science and technology has changed in really profound ways. the most exciting since the 1850s 1860s and so there are amazing scientific and technological solutions to lots of health uh, issues that we um that we that we, that we need to we need to address and we're really excited about investing in in lots of those things energy is now clean green and cheap and it's the cheap bit that's actually driving much of what we need to do. 
but but lots of health stuff is also the equivalent of clean, green and cheap because of the use of the use of technology and technology has improved immeasurably. And we've seen a great example of that in the pandemic, how quickly they, we can energize science and technology to work together to deliver amazing outcomes. That should be the model going forward that we we get things done quickly. But we need policy for that. And I think, you know, as, as, um, as John Tina said, th th there's lots of changes that need to happen. The solutions are on the shelf and it's a bit like climate change. The solutions are on the shelf, the technology is here. The solutions are on the shelf for lots of this stuff, but we need to do them. I have absolute conviction that lots of these things are investable. There's lots of great solutions out there. Our partnership, you know, with many you know, with different organisers, whether that's Oxford University or Edinburgh University, the science is, is staggering, the technology is staggering. So all the preconditions are in there. So some of the debating needs to dial down and a lot of the doing needs to, to dial up. And um, the corporates and the people who are, you know, have amassed amazing amounts of money, there's an amazing amount of money and there's lots of good corporate goodwill and there's lots of great ideas. We do need a bit of policy nudging by the government to really you know, step up and we've heard a lot of talk about that and I've had the privilege of attending lots of those meetings where there's been a lot of talk about it, but it definitely is we need to become a doing culture here in the, here in the UK. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, Michael, can I come to you with my um, first question and I'll come to the other panellists as well. To what extent do you think that coronavirus has changed the health inequality challenges that we face as a country or has it just reinforced issues that were already there? The pandemic and the societal response to the pandemic have exposed the underlying inequalities in society and amplified them. We see it um, particularly with ethnic groups, the very high mortality from COVID-19 in Black African, Black Caribbean, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, and to a lesser extent, Indian. Um, so it's amplified those underlying inequalities, it's brought them to the surface in a way that we must not ignore. And then, of course, um, the societal response, lockdown. Uh, I'll mention the IFS, Gemma, and look at the IFS figures. The lower the household income, the more likely is somebody to be employed in a shuttered sector, in a, a sector that's shut down. So people of high income can continue working, work at home. People of lower income are either exposed in frontline occupations, and we see that in our Build Back Fairer report, uh, or they're out of work. The furlough scheme made a huge difference, but we've got all these problems building up. And just to take one extra indicator, um, things I haven't mentioned, look at depression and or unhappiness, particularly in young people. It rose during the pandemic and particularly in young women did it rise during the pandemic. So the problems of inequalities have been exposed and amplified, which is why paying attention in building back fairer is vital. Tina, Nigel mentioned the, the sort of um, self-interest for businesses of um, wanting to improve the population's health. Do you think the pandemic has actually made businesses more aware of that, how reliant they are on a healthy workforce to be able to continue their business? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very interesting because, of course, when we were first scoping out the idea of the Business for Health venture um, as part of the All-Party Parliamentary Group um, discussions, um, uh, it was at the height of lockdown and the first lockdowns. So of course, business were having to rise to the challenge. And of course, they had to sort of seize, you know, d develop their role uh, in, in terms of um, helping their employees and their workforce in dealing with the pandemic. Um, and of course, you know, they have had to absorb also the consequences of the pandemic. I mean, we can, um, Mike, uh, Sir Michael just pointed to um, depression, for example, musculoskeletal conditions. I mean, these are all the sorts of things that are really impacting the workforce now. And of course, all the conditions that have put us at risk of, um, uh, you know, chronic chronic diseases and ill health. You know, these are the sorts of things that have certainly sort of come to the fore during the pandemic, but of course are also hitting business and of course productivity. These are all the issues that have really, really sort of ignited attention for, you know, for business now coming out of the, the, the pandemic. Uh, they have to essentially sort of, uh, you know, um, raise raise their role in terms of 
dealing with the consequences, but in a way that's proactive and can uh, deliver what we need to uh, need to ahead. Joe, you mentioned in your opening remarks the need to address inequalities both within and between areas. Obviously, the government's levelling up agenda has really predominantly been phrased in terms of helping areas that have been left behind. Are you concerned that perhaps the levelling up agenda could end up overlooking or resources not being allocated to those who are in poor health within otherwise better off areas? Yeah, I th well, I think there's a risk of that. Um, but I suppose it's what do you think about in terms of the funding available. So there's obviously there's the new funding available and there's the existing government spending. And I suppose what we need to make sure is that both of them are being aligned with the need that exists in different communities. And we need to be making sure that the kind of the formula that sit behind allocations take into account overall levels of inequalities and within area level levels of inequalities. We also, I think, need to have mechanisms in government where policy policies that are being developed by different government departments build in much more explicit consideration of how what they're proposing can contribute to improving health and improving the conditions that are needed to promote good health. So I think it can be done and there needs to be a conscious effort to make sure that we don't inadvertently leave some people further behind um, through you know, too superficial thinking about what levelling up means. Tina, you talked about um, that the APPG had highlighted um, 60 areas, I think you said there were 60 local authorities that were most in need of support to help with health inequalities. How do those overlap with the sorts of areas that have so far been prioritised for the government's explicit levelling up funds? We'll have to obviously identify those particular you know local authorities who do need the most support in terms of the data um, but uh, you know clearly these are the areas that already have been spotlighted by for example the, the ONS indices um, and of course they're now they're now developing this um, overall sort of health index which will be really interesting to see that come about because of course they're measuring health more from an asset-based perspective you know healthy lives healthy healthy um, people healthy um, people and healthy places so so that will be another um, interesting uh, thing to keep track of because that will give us much more granular sort of information on where the areas need most support we've got coastal areas obviously rural areas that need more support so the data will show us where where you know which one, which of those 60 areas need the most support um, and could um, essentially be incentivized to make use of, you know, additional funding to help, you know, resolve their local issues. Um, you know, there are going to be, you know, sort of shared um, problem sets across the country, you know, which could uh, be essentially, you know, looked at that might be applicable in, in a sort of more sort of national sort of approach. But, uh, but essentially the data will show us. Nigel, I guess the, the backdrop to the next few years is despite uh, government plans to hugely increase investment spending and they have big ambitions, there is going to be a limit to what government can do in this space on its own. Um, you talked about the role that business could play and the sort of conditions that need to be put in place for that to happen. What are the particular things you would be looking for the government to do over the next few years that would really facilitate business doing what they can in that space? Part of it is get out of the way. I mean, I, I mean, everybody's, you know, the solution to everything is government does this, government does that. In, 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 in my life, it's not been that case, is that, you know, lots of stuff. And we think of government as being the minister who typically is in the job for, you know, 18 months or two years uh, when these are the long term profound changes. We're great fans of devolution and, you know, devolution means local governments and whatever. Uh, have a bigger role to play, you know, in, whether it's Sunderland or Newcastle or, or Manchester or, or Bristol or Oxford, everywhere is, you know, health inequality, inequality exists. And so we need some innovation and investment at, at a local level to create exemplars, because if people see things that happen with, with and deliver great outcomes, they'll copy them pretty quickly. And, you know, you know what we've seen since Michael's great report or the work on climate is not enough real doing around stuff and so we'll certainly be working on a few specific areas of the country rather than the whole of the country to try and create exemplars with willing people 
you know, we we have an ease of use framework with local authorities and cities across the UK, to be frank, is that who, who actually wants to do stuff and get stuff done, who wants to debate it and how do we then achieve the, these these things? Um, clearly, around policy nudges, you know, Henry Dimmelby's food strategy and stuff like that is very important. And I think that you need that contextual policy background because, you know, people need to eat better. And, you know, I know that sounds... Uh, excessive but that that's the truth is people do need to exercise more all those very simple simple things and we need you know the health system not to be predicated on late intervention but it's actually on prevention and we, we all know all this stuff but we're not doing enough of this stuff um we'll we'll find areas of the country where we've got willing people who want to make a difference and get stuff done and with michael's support and other support will make good stuff happen you know we've invested 30 billion so far in urban regeneration we're going to invest another 30 billion we're going to invest you know tens of billions in and in, in, in climate change and the whole area of health is is so important you know we've set up a health and tech uh division subdivision within the business now so that we can address that mental health we've as we have as many mental health first aiders as physical health first aiders because in one sense they're equally important in 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 the workplace and there's so there's lots that people can do and we'll use our convening power you know we own between two and five percent of every company in the uk we you know lots of people are our customers and so we want to use that convening power for good and bring people together who are like-minded and want to get things done at a, lo a local level and you know having tina and joe and michael and many others really engaged in trying to deliver great outcomes because it's the outcomes that matter you know michael could write another great report in 10 years time but he, he won't be happy <laughs> If the outcomes haven't changed a lot in the last 10 years and the disappointing thing about the first report is there's great stuff in there but not a lot had happened in fact we'd gone backwards in the 10 years since michael's first great report and nick had a bit of that with climate change is that he was shouting from the rooftops for a long time i think dennis stevenson is the same on mental health is that we just we haven't been doing enough and so we're definitely going to be working like-minded people People want to make a difference doing it at a local level, you know, whether it's the 60, 30 or the 10 local authorities that really would make we can make some difference in. That's what we'll be doing. Thank you, Michael. There's quite a lot of emphasis or some emphasis, at least in the government's levelling up agenda about creating places that people want to live, that they're proud to live in. But from a health perspective, what makes for a place that someone will grow up and live healthily in and are there things more things the government could be doing to prioritize that and it relates to all six of my domains um, we know uh, we know quite a lot about healthy places i mean let's take very basic housing um, you can't have a healthy place unless you've got a decent housing decent shelter uh, to live in so housing is vital. I mean, the, the visible end is rough sleeping. Uh, next is homelessness in, and then insecure and substandard housing. Uh, we know the importance of taking a green approach, which means transport should be walking, cycling and uh, public transport, uh, absolutely vital. Uh, local amenities, uh, essential social capital, social relationships, um, the relationship of the school um, to the home. And, and I didn't leave it to last because it's the least important, but I, it's vital. And it's what Nigel's been talking about. Um, workplaces, uh, that you do have work in your community and as we've been working with Greater Manchester and uh, now Cheshire and Merseyside, we've been talking to uh, north of Tyne. These are areas that have really suffered because of loss of employment in the past and it's very difficult to have a healthy place unless you've got good work available for people. So they don't have to leave to get work or they've swapped decent jobs for the gig economy. So work is a vital part. And let me say one, just one other thing that's really bothering me. Um, I really like Nigel's uh, formulation. We've got good ideas. There's money. 
we now somehow need to put the two together. Let's not forget the money, though. I mean, we had, was it last week, that the government's advisor on uh, closing or reducing the educational divide um, had a report. The government's saying all the nice words about levelling up. And the prime minister is a classical scholar, so he knows what decimate means. And he decimated the proposed budget from 15 billion to 1.5 billion. So we can talk nice language about leveling up, but it does take money. Money, yes, from the corporate sector, uh, local government, but the national government can't get away from the fact that they have to have convening power, but they need to put money into it too. Thank you. Tina, Michael sort of touched there on some of the political challenges of making progress on this agenda. From your experience working with the APPG on longevity, what, what political challenges did you come across? Is there broad cross-party support for this or where are the kind of, what are the blockages in, in getting this moving forward? I think like what I have experienced, what I've seen and I and and you know, where I, I have actually interfaced and, and have been involved uh, working with the All-Party Parliamentary Group and um, Damon Green is our chair and Lord Filken has been uh, a driving force behind a lot of the work that we've done, um, is the, the importance of seeing seeing everything that we're doing in context of, of, of all the other stakeholders that we have to work with in collaboration to drive change. And I think um, to um, Nigel's point about the sheer pace of innovation, for example, I think it's really, really difficult for, for, for well, for, for any sector, for politicians, for business, you know, for any sector to really keep pace with the, just the sheer magnitude of innovation that is taking place. I mean, uh, we, we focus quite a lot within the party parliamentary group, for example, on innovation, the data space and how we have to really look at data differently and harness data you know, differently to really develop the sort of products and services that will keep us healthy and well. So there's a whole piece of work around that that the Health Foundation involved with called Open Life, for example. But, you know, the sheer um, pace of change that is going on, politicians to keep abreast of, and also looking outside and looking at the perspectives from business, working from, you know, looking at the perspectives from scientists, you know, all that needs to be done. I think what the APPG has done really successfully is, you know, we are a doing machine, you know, to, to Nigel, Nigel's points about the doing, we're bringing um, various sort of stakeholders together. So I think, um, so I think the biggest challenge is, is, is culturally and just bringing people together to look outside their four walls and then being able to synthesize everything in a way that will really deliver the impact. So a lot of what we have tried to do is to say, hang on, let's bring everyone together from multiple different groups, you know, you know, the political sphere, other stakeholders, really look at where we can drive the impact. And that's a difficult process. And it takes a lot of, you know, bashing heads together in a very, very agile way to actually drive through and focus on what's going to drive the impact. So what we've tried to do with the reports is saying, listen, hang on a second, how are we going to achieve this HLE plus five mission, um, you know, with all the stakeholders that need to be involved? It's not just NHS, it's not just government, it's, it's all of us working in collaboration. Um, so, uh, so you know, so the cultural piece, breaking down the silos uh, and collaborating together is, 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 is the, the main challenge, but also the biggest opportunity. Joe, your work has also emphasised a, a similar sort of point about the need for cross-government working because this really does touches on so many areas of what government does. How can you say a bit more about how you think that could work? What, how can that be made more effective? Yeah, so um, we've been doing work on this and what we've been thinking about is both the mechanisms you need within government and then the policies that you need. So on the mechanisms, um, first of all, as Tina's articulating, there doesn't need to be a goal that the government is aiming towards. Um, we need to have some form of overarching goal and then targets supporting that. But we have to also, I think, look at that across a broad basket of indicators, um, because what we know about improving health and reducing health inequalities is, you know, there are areas where you can get some um, you know, sort of initial impact and you can show benefit. You know, we know that um, action around perinatal care, for instance, we know action with certain health conditions and diseases can show some um, gains and benefits, but that doesn't necessarily get into the sort of more underlying and longer run problems that we have of poverty, obesity, poor housing and so on. So we need a broad basket of indicators that will incentivise action across a full range of activities and not skew um, towards any particular one. We need that 
coordination across government. Uh, I think Tina said right at the beginning, this isn't just a Department of Health and Social Care responsibility. Most government departments have got a role to play to contribute to create the conditions that can support healthy lives. So that has to be coordinated in some way. And we've been looking at other big initiatives um, that have been successful. And they usually do require some leadership from cabinet office or treasury or some so one of the um, parts of government that can really bring people together. Um, we've talked about funding, which is clearly important. Um, but the other thing is, is this has to be tracked. You know, this has to be tracked in a meaningful way. And we think there needs to be some independent assessment of what's happening with the population's health. In the same way we have independent scrutiny of the economy, we need independent assessment and scrutiny laid before Parliament of what's happening um, with the population's health. Because what we don't want to do is exactly fine, 10 years on, you know, we have another report and nothing's changed. And so we, this, this needs to have attention and scrutiny. Thank you. I'll go now to questions that are coming in from our audience. Um, and the first one is from Peter Williamson, who asks, given the UK has a poor record on public health and gives great priority instead to health care, what, if anything, is likely to trigger greater priority being given to public health? And I, I think, um, Nigel, that's actually something um, that you touched on in, in your opening remarks. I don't know if you have any thoughts about how we can shift this focus. Part of the shift in focus would be somehow that there's a cabinet minister who's going to step up and and and, and make lots of great stuff happen. There's, there's lot, not lots of evidence that that's the case. And I think it is breaking it down into solvable bits of it. Um, you know, I think, you know, the situation around or analysis around diabetes, dementia, depression and everything is all fantastic. It's the doing bit, bits and we've got to break that down into you know local authorities or cities or corporates. Uh, who, who are very prominent actors and how do we reshape their behaviour to make them accountable and responsible for, for delivering you know, improvements in, 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 in health and building the right places and all the rest of it. The CEOs I, I meet, the local people I meet in the cities, the health professionals in those cities all want to do the same thing. And as we heard in, in education, the right number is 15 billion, they're going to do one and a half billion. And we'll have this constant debate, it'll take longer and whatever, is that we, we do need action at a local a local level. And we need cities and towns and the corporates within those cities and towns who, who, to step up and really, really step up. And it's enlightened self-interest for stepping up as the, you know, 90 billion on sickness is a big number. And, you know, we, we want, you know, health and well-being is a really important part of our strategy for, for all of our people. And we want them to have a purpose, but part of that purpose is that their, 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 their health and well-being is good, good in the workplace. And the workplace has to be a, a prominent part of what the solution is. And in, yes, you know, in a sense, the, the the government can play a very important role, but every other sentence can't be lived with the government this, the government that, because that's not necessarily the way to get stuff done. I mean, I think the government can have policy nudges and facilitate and shape things, but we do need you know, more than that to uh, you know get the right amount of money. The world is awash with money. The, the UK pension industry in the UK has six trillion pounds, which much of which is looking for a home to invest, invest in. These are enormous amounts of, of money across the, across the world. We have negative interest rates in large parts of the world. We've got to come up with practical solutions which allow that money to be recycled. But as I said, the science and technology around some of this stuff is off the scale. You know, the fact that we've you know we've got vaccinations for the pandemic of that in, you know in, in, in so quickly there's tons of great off-the-self solutions we've just got to make them happen. Michael I'll come to you with the same question how do you think we can shift the focus from acute health care back to public health? Well in May 2010 review we pointed out that public health spend was about four percent of the health spend and we said it should go up to seven percent. I come for the life of me um, track back to where, how we came to seven. I think we probably thought that if we said double it, that sounded arbitrary. Seven sounds really scientific, um, but so I can't remember how we got from four to seven. But the government did the opposite. 
after establishing Public Health England in 2012 and moving public health into local government, it took 800 million pounds out of local public health and reduced Public Health England's budget by 40%. So we disinvested. There, I made this great recommendation, improve it by 75% or something from four to 7%, and it went down dramatically. Now, Nigel's made the case, I've made the case, um, Joe and Tina have made the case that public health isn't only about organized public health. It's, it's about all these other things that affect the health of the public. But organized public health does have a role to play. And the good news is we're not as bad as the United States. Uh, I've just read um, Michael Lewis's book on the pandemic in the US, and they don't have a public health system. I mean, a complete failure, uh, a fragmentation of little entities all around the United States with no organized system. We do, thankfully, have an organized system and we starved it of resources. So we've made it much more difficult for it to function. And just to repeat, it's not just for organized public health. We need, we need local communities. We need local government. We need the corporate sector. We need the voluntary sector. Uh, we need all of these different sectors. But organized public health has a very important role to play, and it can't play that role if it's starved of funding. Joe or Tina, do you have anything to add on that? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I would only um, uh, um, say absolutely everything and vouch for everything that Sir Michael has just said, but I think the additional complication of you comparing, for example, the UK and the US, I mean, we in Europe, uh, sorry, the UK fared the worst in, in all of Europe, you know, as a result of COVID. And that is despite the fact that we have a public health system compared to the US, for example, which also fared very poorly. So there's something else. And I think one of the, 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 the challenges that we have as a nation is that we are so um, we, we think that the NHS is going to be there to pick up all the pieces. So we have to get out of that mindset. So there's a whole cultural uh, cultural piece that is actually the most difficult thing to, to, to wrestle away. We have to think differently. There has to be a more proactive approach just generally across all stakeholders in society. And I think, you know, I think COVID, what the, the, the good thing about COVID, if I can say there, there have been some silver linings in a sense, despite the, the tragedy and the horrors that we've seen with COVID, is that it has really, really focused public attention on how important their health is. We've seen, you know, that the consequences, and I think people are really starting to see the link with, you know, you know, wider societal prosperity about why health is so important. So I think we need to grab that, we need to bottle that up really quickly before that dissipates, before we go back. Um, you know, clearly we've got some massive challenges. We've got, a, we've got a chronic disease epidemic actually, and it's now, you know, it's been racking up. So we have to clear, clear the deck, but we need a long-term focus and we need the public behind us as well. And to stop thinking that the answer to everything is to build more hospitals, because it's not. It's an unsustainable model. We have to move towards a more preventative model, which is why the business community is so critical to this. And to Nigel's point, we need to see long-term patient capital flowing into this space with long, much longer-term time horizons than would ever be put. That you know, the, the you know, the NHS and 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 government they work on very very short time frames and budgets. We have we need a much longer-term view, and this is where the business community and the capital that exists and the, the trillions that Nigel was talking about. We need to make sure it gets to the right places to get the impact. Joe, did you want to come in as well? Yeah, I think I, I think Tina's really put her finger on something important there in terms of sort of public understanding of what makes us healthy and the work we've done at the Health Foundation, which it's very clear that the public do think the NHS has this absolutely sort of critical and um, sort of paramount role, which it does when we're ill but less so when we're thinking about what makes us healthy. And I think the other challenge that we have with public understanding is that, um, you know, the public tend to think you know, that it's about individual agency, that it's about, you know, me making the right choices. And there's less understanding and recognition of how much some people's choices are constrained compared to others um, and what that then means to what they're able to do. So I think this public understanding point is really important. I think one of the things we have seen over the last year and a half, though, is the absolutely central role that directors of public health play in local government. And I know that on the back of that, directors of public health 
are much more prominent. And I think building on that opportunity in the recovery and drawing on their expertise to think about how to sort of build that better um, approach embeds public health considerations is important. And on budgets, I mean, we've, we've done work at the Health Foundation looking at the public health budget and, you know, it is terrible how it's fallen behind. It's not kept pace with NHS spending, even if, you know, you just use that as one marker of how what you might need. But I think the other thing to think about is what's happening across all of government spending where because we're not making the investments in stopping things going wrong in the first place more and more money whether it's in housing whether it's you know in the criminal justice system whether it's in education it's going into the things that are fixing the problems rather than putting it into the areas where um, we can invest and keep people well and contributing to society in the first place so I think there has to be much more scrutiny of where government money is going and make sure more of it is going into that kind of investment in our population rather than, you know, just kind of patching things up when they're going wrong. Thank you. The next question I'll take is covers a topic that we actually haven't touched on at all yet, which is tax. Um, the questioner asks, given the fiscal position, should we be advocating tax measures to promote health? So things like increasing alcohol duties. Um, what do you all think about that as a, a possible way forward to try and promote public health? Perhaps, Joe, I'll come to you first in reverse order. Um, well, I think, you know, there's a bigger conversation about tax generally and support, you know, what taxation is needed to support the sorts of public services people want. I think then there's a kind of more specific conversation about some of the sort of tax levers that are there and are being shown to be effective. So um, we know things like you know minimum alcohol unit pricing in Scotland has been shown to be beneficial. We don't have that in England at the moment. We saw that the soft drinks industry levy led to organised uh, producers reformulating their products. So it kind of it led to the right um, result in terms of the sort of health impact that we wanted to see. So we know these things work. You know. Tobacco taxation has been another example where we know that's been one of the things that has contributed to reduce smoking. So they do work. You know, there's clearly opportunity for, for more of that to happen. Um, you know, and that's something that has to be a kind of, you know, that kind of comes back as well, I think, to the sort of public will and su public support and recognition that these things actually are valuable in the long run. Michael? Yeah, um, two comments. Firstly, uh, supporting what Joe said, you know, if you raise the price, um, this is economics 101, uh, consumption goes down. Um, so it works, it really works. Uh, but we've got to look at the equity dimension and, and we've got to take that into account all the time. Uh, that if you raise the price of healthy food, um, of unhealthy food and it's food that's being consumed by poor people that makes them poorer. So one just needs to be aware of the equity dimension. But the second, and I and Joe alluded to it, is tax more generally. We are a low tax country. Um, 35% approximately um, uh, taxation of GDP. The US is 25%. Uh, you will have seen the publication, I think it was ProPublica, it was picked up by the New York Times last week. Um, Jeff Bezos, between 2014 and 2018, I think there were two or three years where he paid no income tax at all. And his wealth increased. Are you ready for this? In that five years, by $99 billion. He obviously got into the nervous 90s and didn't make his century, poor fellow. Um, and if what ProPublica did is they looked at his tax rate, look at the real tax rates so and looked at wealth accumulation, because what these chaps declare an income is totally arbitrary. And his effective tax rate was less than less than 1%, it was 0.9%. That lovely grandfatherly fellow um, Warren Buffett, who says he should pay more tax, I'm sure he should. His effective tax rate was 0.35%. 
Um, so uh, Nigel said, there's a lot of money sloshing about. And there's the model, uh, and again, picking up Nigel's language, what I've just referred to is the model of exclusive capitalism. Uh, a small number of people accumulate vast wealth that they use, and Jeff Bezos is going to shoot himself into space. Um, they use this vast wealth that they accumulate. What Nigel's talking about, um, one is using wealth, as he said, six trillion pounds in the pension industry alone for good, to improve society, not just to improve the prospects of flying into space, um, but to improve society. And the second is everyone. Um, so these fellows who pay less than 1%, uh, well, the average American family pays 14% um, of their $60,000 of their income in tax, where it's probably higher in this country. So a proper rate of taxation that's fair uh, would also make a huge difference. Nigel, did you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree. I mean, the, the tax on tobacco has made a massive difference to life expectation uh, in the in the UK off the scale and has been hugely ex uh, uh, the right thing to do. All the examples on sugar say that it is the right thing to do is to tax it in a in a totally different way. And so we, we do need to tax food in a in a, in a way. And, and communicate it and clearly you know potatoes and carrots and all of the great stuff you, you can work both ways around and so you can subsidize other, other parts but this is such a real deep societal problem unless we take radical steps in in the way that we price and signal to the community at large you won't get the behavioral changes that you really need and we've seen a massive drop-off in, in in smoking consumption, as Michael said, it's 101, which I used to teach 101 economics um, many years ago. Um, that 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 has to happen, and we need a much wider public debate about about this to make sure that actually this this is the consensus. You know, it is tobacco, sugar, they're the same the same thing. We're going to do it on all sorts of climate assets, and you can see that happening already and um you know then how we tax you know cars and we're doing away with you know the the um promoting ev cars and and doing away with the the combustion engine cars and that's the right thing to do from a society level we need radical plans for health that are the equivalent of tobacco and and cars and health you know tobacco was health and we've got to do it again big time tina so just just to add uh, one thing, I mean, of course, you know, everything that's just been said to completely uh, agree with. Um, and of course, you know, it's building on what we know already works, for example, the sugar leg. I think there's more that could be done in other areas of like salt and and, you know, other sorts of drinks and things like that. But I, I think the, the big area that's going to be the spotlight is some of the work that we're doing with Business for Health. We're in the throes actually just right now um, looking at the development of a business index, um, which will measure business contribution to health. And of the five priorities that I had mentioned at the beginning um, for, in the levelling up health report, food is a big area that's under the spotlight at the moment. Um, we know that we eat a huge amount of uh, unhealthy, you know, very ultra high processed food. And and I note then to Sir Michael's point, yes, absolutely. We know this is a massive issue and we don't want to exacerbate the health inequalities piece. Um, but I think it is an area that absolutely needs to be in the public debate. We need more information and transparency about, you know, how the food system is actually really, really, um, you know, making us unwell and perpetuating the cycle of addiction to unhealthy foods. So, so that's going to be a big area under the spotlight. So I think there's a lot to be done there. Um, next question, which I'm, unfortunately may be the last one we have time to take today, comes from David Hunter. So David's um, contention is that uh, this government, like its predecessors, seems more wedded to an individual lifestyle approach to population health rather than tackling upstream social determinants of health. And that focusing on individual behaviour in that way, um, whilst it's part of the armoury, will be insufficient to tackle the challenges that Michael has outlined in his report. So I suppose the question to all of you is, do you agree with that contention? Um, and if so, uh, what levers are there to tackle the um, imbalance between that individual versus 
socioeconomic, social environment approach. Um, Michael, I'll come to you first. Uh, not surprisingly, I agree with the approach I took in my reports um, that we do have to address the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age. And uh, what everything Nigel said at this um, in this session has been music to my ears. We have the solutions. We do. You know, I, I and others have reviewed the evidence. We really know what to do. And there's a lot of money sloshing about. So let's not go down that blind alley of blaming people for their individual behaviours. It is a blind alley. Um, I thought that it got knocked on the head in the 19th century as an approach to policy, but we have some people up to date with the mid 1850s still blaming people for their poor health. Uh, we know it's wrong. The evidence is against it. Let's act on the evidence and we know what to do. There's money to do it. Let's now get cracking. And as Joe said, make sure we don't get it wrong by tracking what we do and um, being our own conscience to to see that it's really making the difference we want it to make. Nigel, I'll come to you next and actually wrap in another question that has come in specifically to you, which is you talked in your remarks about the need to start doing. Can you say a bit more about what you will, as LNG specifically, be doing with Michael and with the local authorities that you talked about? Yeah, I think uh, on, I'll take on the doing because I agree with, with Michael's point there. I do think privately a lot of the government wants to do the right thing. You, you just need, you know, the, I think we, we've got to figure out how, how we do the right thing and make stuff happen and then, then create momentum behind it. I mean, as you know, we, we gifted £20 million to the University of Edinburgh to work, work on a huge bunch of research projects and they've since raised another £25 million to um, work on healthy life expectancy and how to improve that, um, which I think is the right thing to do. With Newcastle, we gave £5 million to the city and the university to build the care home of the future. That was and we just said actually we'll top it up and no not no strings attached you get on with it you do it you you, you make that that uh, happen I would, uh, you know I enjoyed my Michael's work in 2010 and sadly uh, in one sense I quite enjoyed the 2020 version or 2021 um, but actually it's it's the change stuff and we're here to help uh, Michael and others by by taking the science and the evidence and implementing it and using our convening power, our access to capital, our brand name to really help facilitate. You know, we are one of the biggest house builders already. We did this thing on Less House Britain a number of years ago, and we've now become, in a very short period of time, one of the biggest house builders uh, in, in Britain. We've got some, and all the stuff that, that my three fellow panelists have said, I pretty much agree with all, all of that. Um, and we're here to support other people's ideas, if you like. You know, I, I, I didn't think of, you know, the clean, green and cheap, but, but actually implementing that. You know, I'm not there, you know, designing houses, but we've got clever people who can do that. You know, we, we, you know, we announced the four billion pound project with Oxford University and, and uh, that's a 40 to 40, 50 year project. You know, we did Manchester the other day, it's a 15 to 20 year, one and a half billion pounds. So there's tons of money for doing the right things and we're just happy to help. People have got vision, but the scientific and the evidence to support what they really want to do. Tina, um, so I guess that's the original question about what you think the, the levers for tackling the social determinants of health should be. Well, I mean, I, I, I just see enormous potential and opportunity with just much better and effective public sector and private sector collaboration. I mean, we've got lots of, I mean, I think what, what I found, you know, coming out of COVID and, and I do, you know, I do quite a lot of work in public sector. And I just think the antibodies were, you know, a lot of them dissolved between the working between public and private sector during COVID. We've, uh, we've seen, um, and, and speaking to some directors of public health very, very recently, you know, there's a huge um, desire to work more collaboratively with private sector and obviously in, in these sort of more local place-based approaches to solve you know community problems and of course now that we're seeing the evolution of integrated care systems etc I just think there's so much more it's the way that we do things in a collaborative way and actually focusing more on 
on, on, on the social impact that we want to achieve, I think is, and of course, this is where some of the um, discussions, you know, certainly for Business for Health, and I know Nigel and, and John Godfrey and, and our, our partners, you know, seeing things much more broadly in the context of, of how we can get health within a wider context of ESHG frameworks and investment. You know, I just think the whole thinking needs to change where we can, yes, focus on where, you know, we can be proactive at making sure that public sector government are there to help those who are most vulnerable. Joe, I'll give you the final word. Well, I think the really encouraging thing at the moment is the fact that we've got the engagement with the business community on this agenda. I don't think that would have been there 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, there is huge resource available. I think what I would caution is that we really need to make sure that the business community do recognise this is about the conditions people live and work in. Um, it isn't about individual level solutions. You know, businesses need to be creating good quality work. Um, you know, we're not going to solve this if we have a company creating new apps for people to improve their mental well-being, but the cleaners going in to clean their office are still not being paid the living wage. So we've really got to see this as something that is about changing the conditions in which people live and work. And with the partnership of the business community on this, I think that's a really hopeful side to it. Thank you, Joe. That's a great and very positive note to end on. Um, unfortunately, we are now slightly over the end of our, our time limit. We could have carried on with many more uh, questions and discussions on this. Um, so I hope you'll continue to engage with us on this. Just thank you very much to Michael, to Nigel, to Tina and Joe for joining me today for this discussion. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. Um, again, many thanks to Legal and General for supporting this event and to the one coming up on Monday, which Bronwyn mentioned, where we'll have Peter Mandelson and Rachel Wolfe and others discussing what levelling up really mean. Um, and so it just remains for me to say thank you for watching and please do come back to us again soon. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.